from the nation's leading supply chain university program, we welcome you to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research. Here are your hosts, Steve Tracy and Irv Grossman. Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast. I'm joined here by my colleague and co-producer, Irv Grossman from Chainalytics. And today we have the privilege of joining us, uh, one of the prominent members of our faculty here at Penn State, Mr. Aiden Alptiganolu. I would have gotten some money if I would have gotten Irv to present, try to present, present him and pronounce his name, but he didn't want to do it, so he made me do it. And I think Aiden knows I got it right. It only took me two years to figure it out, so I feel pretty good about that. So uh, Aiden is the Professor of Supply Chain Management and the Robert G. Schwartz University Endowed Fellow in Business Administration here in the Department of Supply Chain Information Systems. And he's also my colleague. Uh, he is our research director in the Center for Supply Chain Research. Aiden received his PhD in Operations Management from UCLA, um, and he joined SMEAL in 2013. And he's held positions both at the University of Florida and SMU prior to joining Penn State. So please join me in welcoming Aiden to the podcast today. Uh, thank you, Steve, uh, and thank you, Irv. Uh, great to be here. Thank you. So the subject today is choice modeling. Correct. So let's start off with a basic question. So in layman's term, layperson's terms, Aiden, could you explain to uh, Irv and myself and our audience, what is choice modeling? So uh, choice, as the, as the name uh, implies in colloquial use, uh, it's about uh, making choices in life. And uh, the particular types of choices that I look at uh, tend to be discrete choices. Let's say, uh, you know, do you take a job or don't take a job? Uh, when you go for shopping, uh, you know, do you, uh, do you uh, buy red apples or green apples? Uh, so these are uh, discrete choices uh, that I look at. And the reason I find them interesting is this is one way to study from, you know, micro foundations uh, demand. Because uh, what firms see as demand is nothing but a collection of uh, thousands of choices, potentially, right? If, if, even if it's a business to business uh, transaction, still there are choices made by uh, the buyers, right? So there are uh, discrete choices in life uh, all over the place. Uh, so that's the kind of uh, choice that I'm interested in, uh, specifically to build uh, uh, models for and understand demand for a given product, whether it be a physical product or a service. So uh, starting from psychology uh, and later in economics, uh, people have developed uh, mathematical models to describe people's choices. And uh, so the specific type of modeling that I look at uh, it, basically uh, it feeds from that. Uh, so, th so these are mathematical models to explain individual choices. And then uh, we aggregate those individual choices into a demand model. And in the end, we get a neat mathematical description of demand. Depending on uh, the choices you showed people, uh, they, pick, they make choices and then you, you see demand. Now, why are such models sort of interesting potentially uh, for businesses? Uh, so I'll tell you a few application areas, but uh, given choices so fundamental, this is uh, quite widely applicable beyond even business. So one area I'm particularly interested in is how, how firms should think about uh, their product variety or assortment. 
And the reason why these choice models would have to be like essential is uh, when something is not available, you go to another choice that is available, right? So that substitution, for example, can be captured by these, by these math models. When you have smaller set of, uh, of alternatives to choose from versus a bigger set of alternatives to choose from, like imagine, uh, you know, going to a small store versus going to Amazon, right? So the choice uh, is, is much bigger on Amazon. Almost uh, infinite, course, right? Yeah, almost. Uh, and of course, it's a, you know, it's a different channel too. Uh, but again, your, your choices will be impacted by what you were presented with, right? Uh, so one, as one area where uh, choice modeling uh, makes a difference for businesses is uh, product variety assortment management. The other area would be pricing. So if you have a mathematical description of how people make choices, the choices that they see, if you promote one of those products, let's say you give 10% discount on a certain type of coffee, among the types of coffees that people can buy at a, at a grocery store, how much lift will there be in demand for that coffee, promoted coffee? Again, you need a substitution mathematically captured so that you can optimize the price, right? So that's another application area. I'm just gonna mention two more application areas and then and then uh, shut up uh, because sometimes I, I sound I may sound sort of too academic, right? So product recommendations is another area. Like when you when you log into Netflix, Netflix shows you a few possibilities to watch next. Again, that uh, comes from demand modeling and that demand modeling might come from a discrete choice model. A, a fourth area uh, would be a, return, a product return policy design. Again, these uh, choice models and the demand models that are built on them uh, can be used to optimize these things. So the list is actually very, very long where choice modeling can be used. So I gave you four uh, that I have particular interest in. Uh, variety, variety, price, product recommendation, and return policy design. So can I just, uh, can we go th drill down a little bit on one of them? Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about, about price as a good example. So you have a set price and the demand is the idea that, or I'll call it, let's say a coupon or, or a price increase mm -hmm. or price mm -hmm. decrease. And, and, it, and you're modeling the influence of increased demand against that item, right? Okay. Correct. Exactly. In fact, uh, I'll give you, uh, you picked a great one because uh, I happened to work with a PhD student just recently uh, on a project and it's ongoing and it is very applied in nature. Uh, and there's also new theory being built. So this is ideal for sort of PhD dissertation uh, work. Uh, and it is uh, purely about promotions, uh, price promotions. So imagine uh, a hotel uh, selling rooms and uh, in advance, of course, people book rooms, right? Uh, suppose you booked a certain room at a certain category. Let's say uh, it was a king size, uh, regular kind of room. And after you book, uh, some hotels actually would sell you some upsell offers. Upsell in particular here means uh, for a bit of a discount uh, on the original price, we can give you a first class room. Okay. So my student worked on uh, a choice model that would explain how people uh, would react to such offers, upsell offers. Uh, so, so that's a price optimization example uh, where uh, you made your initial choice and, and then you, you were offered an upsell uh, and, and the firm is trying to decide how much of a discount to do on the first classroom uh, so that uh, you might be able to spend a bit more uh, but not as much as the original price you, because you hadn't picked it at the, at the original price, right? So uh, this is, uh, as I said, this is PhD uh, dissertation work. 
And uh, I worked with uh, Oracle with their hotel business unit to apply this model. Apply in the sense of, you know, they gave us historical data uh, from uh, one of the hotel chains that they work with. And uh, based on that historical data, my student was able to test the theoretical model that she built. And uh, the model fit was great. Uh, it was actually better than uh, what they were doing uh, before before our, our model came along. Um, so this is one area where like op price optimization can be done with choice modeling. And I can give you more detail like in, in a space of hours. Uh, I'm just curious. If, well, yeah, well if I mean, I don't want to skip around, Steve. I got one one question for you that's really, right now we're in the middle of this, this pandemic. A lot of questions are coming up regarding the variety of, of, of SKUs that, that, a, that a company will keep on its, uh, its shelf or provide to the customer. And you're hearing a lot due to risk and resiliency issues and possibly inflation coming on is that there may be a need to cut the tail. How does your choice modeling um, come into place on things like variety? Um, do you ever get into these situations? And if so, can you describe a little bit about it? So uh, the the literature there's actually a, a like some uh, a sizable literature on uh, estimating uh, the impact of changing an assortment uh, on demand. Uh, so people uh, looked at things like if you cut uh, the SKUs, uh, like uh, cut the tail, so to speak, uh, how how would the demand be impacted? Um, I have not seen anything yet on uh, specifically using COVID data. In fact, uh, Steve and I had uh, several conversations on this. Uh, like, for example, with Aldi or, or Wegmans or any of the grocery chains, one could look at precisely that question. And uh, I want to emphasize also that so the type of structural, uh, type, type of mathematical modeling that I do uh, would be absolutely essential to figure that out. Because unless you have a theory of how things work, uh, it, it will be very hard to forecast uh, that kind of dramatic change on the assortment, uh, what, what the impact will be on, on revenues. So uh, if any of the listeners out there uh, interested in that kind of problem, I, I, would be, I would be all ears. So the problem you described, Irv, uh, would be a perfect application of uh, the kinds of things that I do. So I, I think I and, and my fellow supply chain professionals have always thought about um, the right SKU mix as being a little bit of the holy grail, right? And no one's been able to quite figure out yet. But I know in conversations we've talked about and, and choice modeling goes back a ways. And I'd like if, if you could maybe compare some of the more traditional, well-known and most commonly applied models like Logit, for example, and what it does and how it works to the stuff that you're working on, which is for lack of a better description, really cutting edge and has a lot of promise and potential. So can you kind of compare sort of the traditional well-established methodologies and what you're working on and where you think the future is going to be? Uh, thank you. So, so that's, uh, so without getting into, you know, technical details, I'll give you a high level sort of historical review, I suppose. Use as uh, many 13 letter words as you can. That's, that's, pretty <laughs> I'll, I'll do that. Um, so there's a guy named uh, Daniel McFadden, uh, and uh, he was not the only one who worked on the on the Logit model, but he was uh, so instrumental that in the year 2000 uh, he re he received the Nobel Prize uh, for working on a discrete choice model, the type of models that I that I began uh, the podcast with, uh, and that model is called Logit. 
And, uh, and it is very uh, widely applied by now. And in fact, the Nobel Committee, when they looked at his work, uh, they uh, wanted to understand the impact. And they saw several areas that, that were majorly impacted by this, uh, by this little uh, mathematical beauty. So for example, transportation would be another area where he made an impact. He was an econ professor, but uh, he made an impact in transportation as well. Uh, and these days um, in retailing, for example, uh, when managers are convinced that they should build a mathematical model of the sort that I'm talking about, uh, the default would probably be logit or some logit-based model. And, and one of the reasons is mathematically, it's very elegant. And the second reason is it proved itself empirically over time, that it fits data reasonably well. Uh, it uh, helps people improve decisions like price, uh, assortment, things like that. Lately, uh, I would say, in the last eight or 10 years, um, I began reading uh, sort of more deeply on, on discrete choice models. And with a, with a former colleague of mine, I developed an alternative model uh, that seems to have a lot of um, uh, analytical uh, conveniences of, of logit. Um, and we also tested this model uh, that we named exponomial. Uh, there's your 13 letter uh, word, uh, Steve. Um, so uh, this exponomial model actually fits the data better than uh, the logit model. So we tested uh, this model on grocery data set, on, on a grocery data set. And uh, I've seen uh, other people test my model against logit uh, using uh, hospitality uh, data and um, uh, restaurant uh, visit data, things like that. So uh, it's a very promising model. There, there needs to be a lot, a lot more work uh, to actually uh, to prove itself uh, against Logit. Uh, and uh, we are basically in the process of, of doing that. Uh, with another, with, uh, again, with a PhD student, I'm actually working on applying this model to search uh, shopping uh, journeys. Uh, like uh, think about somebody uh, shopping for a TV. And uh, so they might log in on Amazon and look at options. And uh, when they go to specific product pages, they can do all the research they want, uh, but this research is costly, right? So the type of model that we're building uh, incorporates that cost of research. And as soon as somebody finds a, a acceptable product that they are happy with, uh, they're not gonna probably search the rest of the long list that Amazon has, right? So let's say there are uh, 2000 SKUs that's relevant for that search a consumer might be able to look at maybe 50, right? So depending on how much time they have. So uh, the, the type of model we're building uh, includes basically search in, uh, uh, in, in discrete choice. And uh, we wanna apply this uh, using on a data from JD.com. So this is like Amazon of China. Uh, and they have really um, uh, detailed uh, search data, like search paths that people took. Uh, so using that that wonderful data set, we want to apply my model, the exponomial model, together with sort of search elements and, and apply to apply it to that data. So I, I have a quote for you, Aiden, that you can use in this paper that, that is awesome. true. It's been built over time. Mm -hmm. You know where er, people always find everything that they're looking for? I don't know. Hmm. This is always true. In the in last the place that they look. In the last people always find what they're looking for in the last place that they look. So, so when you talked about research, <laughs> I, I, when you talked about research, uh, the, the cost of research, 
Uh, is it the cost of research to build the content that is related to the specs of what uh, Amazon or uh, Amazon is listed, or do you identify the research as the cost of time of search of the consumer? So our model is a bit agnostic on that. So uh, what, what we are saying is for the consumer to fully evaluate an option, they need to spend time and maybe money because sometimes search involves buying and returning. So uh, returning sometimes involves costs, like you have to drive maybe, or you, or you pay shipping costs, right? Um, so it can be monetary, it can be non-monetary. Uh, we sum all that up into a disutility in our model. So per product, uh, they need to uh, pay a search cost. Consumers need to pay a search cost uh, to fully evaluate that option. Yeah, that's what. And uh, I realized I didn't get it. I didn't fully answer uh, Steve's question on what the difference is between these uh, modeling approaches between Logit, uh, the guy who you know the Nobel-winning work versus versus mine. Well, well, we know that Logit is five letters and exponomial is ten letters. It's not quite thirteen <laughs> letters, so you need to come up with a few more letters. But besides the length in the description, what is the, what is the difference between the two? Yes. So uh, conceptually, I think the simplest way to say this is. We assume uh, there is a limit to how much utility people can gather from a product, whereas Logit does not assume any such limit. With the, with the Logit model, you're assuming there is a uh, long tail for uh, the utility that any anybody can get from this product. So some people can, like will be like really crazy about that product. That that's what long tail of, of that distribution means. The type of distribution we're using, we're basically cutting off uh, the possibility, the potential for that product at some point, because every product is, is you know, can deliver only so much utility, right? Um, unless it's, I guess, life and death, right? So in fact, uh, going through this research also made me think what kinds of choice scenarios are better addressed with what kinds of models, right? And maybe uh, eventually 50 years down the line, people will say exponomial will fit these kinds of scenarios better, and Logit will fit these kinds of scenarios better. And, I, and I'm going to give you a conjecture. If, if let's say, it's an art, artwork that is hard to value, uh, I'm, I'm going to conjecture that Logit might actually be a better model. Whereas if it's uh, grocery items, unless they are really scarce, right, uh, the, you have options and you have substitutions even. Uh, like if uh, this type of milk doesn't work or, or it's not available, you can buy some other kind of milk, or you can drive a bit further and buy milk, right? So as that kind of, uh, I'm going to say more mundane scenarios where most businesses operate, uh, I think exponomial will fit better. Um, I was kind of biased in that. So in when, so when, you, uh, when you're nominated for the Nobel Prize, if we, can, we can replay this podcast mm -hmm. and say we knew you win, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, 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 and we called it back then. So where can people find out more information about this if they wanted to learn more? So certainly emailing me would be uh, would be one option, right? Uh, Aiden at psc.edu. Our papers are not are archival. And uh, and as an author, I'm, I'm free to send copies. I can send papers. Uh, papers are going to be like very special, like the writing will be very specialized. So uh, probably talking to me would be uh, would be the best option. I, I did have actually uh, people contacting me from consulting companies uh, wanting to use my model, and I shared my code uh, and my data with them. So that's a possibility. I can help people uh, at least uh, get going with estimation, model estimation. And uh, 
there's another paper that recently came out, uh, and the authors of that paper also made their code available. Uh, so they actually used my model to test it against other a bunch of other models. Uh, and I'm happy to say my model did uh, pretty well. And they shared their code as well as data uh, fully available. So anyone who is uh, really motivated with a few emails, they can find codes and data to test this. And then uh, they can build their own versions of, of that. Hey, hey I'm, I'm sure all of us, both as business persons and as consumers, encounter choice modeling indirectly on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes? Very true. Can, Very you, true. can you give the audience some examples of where they're encountering choice modeling? And maybe a second part of that question is, can you talk to our practitioners about where maybe choice modeling might, might enable them to improve how they do their business? So let's start with the first question. Like, where would we both as business persons and as consumers, where would we encounter choice modeling and, and how would we encounter it? My, my best example for that would be product recommendations. Uh, so uh, when you pull up uh, the app, uh, Amazon app on your phone, or uh, when you log into Netflix, they are trying to show you relevant products. And uh, that needs to be done in real time, right? So as soon as you log in, in a few seconds, they need to show you uh, five to 10 options. Behind that display of options, there is choice modeling, real-time optimization, and then display, right? Because they actually, mm -hmm. so, the, so the cutting edge of this practice, they would actually customize the content to your tastes. So they're looking at maybe what I or, or whoever was using my Netflix account, which could be like, you know, I shouldn't say this, but my entire family. family. So they're looking at our prior history of what we may have watched on Netflix and they're mm -hmm. analyzing that data set and then applying yes. it to a choice model and making recommendations for what we might enjoy watching based on that data set that they have. Is that correct? Exactly. And through choice modeling, uh, they're able to uh, put a number, uh, they're able to estimate how likely you are to pick one of the choices that you just showed them. Right. So in Amazon's case, uh, maybe uh, they, uh, based on your historical uh, purchases and, and whatnot, uh, they are estimating that you're right now interested in replenishing your coffee supplies. Right. So they show you maybe one or two coffee options. Or uh, they might have looked at your uh, last purchase and they realize there's a complimentary purchase that people typically make after they buy that product. Let's say they bought uh, a phone and uh, they didn't buy from that site yet any phone case. Right. So there might be a recommendation on, 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 a, on a phone case. Netflix, the same thing. Right. So based on your uh, viewing history, uh, the tastes and, and all that, they're trying to estimate what would be the most likely for you to watch next? Right? So that would be a day-to-day -day, uh, example where choice modeling makes it. I, I can only imagine how confusing my data set is because it's probably looking at milk and vodka <laughs> and circular tall blades. And saying, I have no idea what this guy <laughs> wants to buy next. Steve, that's a really good point, actually. So uh, the uh, uh, I was thinking about this in the context of Netflix, right? Because there are uh, so many different occasions where you watch uh different things, right? So uh, I don't know how they interpret that data, but there must be some modeling even for that, right? So they maybe they know something about your household size, right? Uh, so they, they may actually develop guesses as to uh, who is in that household. Well, they may also get, I'm also thinking about like taking time stamping 
and actually identifying, you know, who may be watching based on timestamping, things like that, that they would try to see if they can get rid of the knolls. Yeah. Whoever's up at, well, my wife is an early bird and I'm, I'm, I'm up late. So I'm sure they're probably thinking that, you know, whoever is watching Netflix past 11 PM, it's going to be more like military movies and <laughs> the latest episode of Tiger King, as opposed to something, you know, more like a Hallmark, you know, it snows, you know, the couple gets married and they kiss and Santa and Christmas is saved, you know? So it's, uh, it's quite a bit different. So where, where would a professional, you know, somebody that Irv and I might encounter on a day-to-day basis, where could they use choice modeling to, to run their businesses better? So uh, do you want to continue on the product recommendation example or something else, maybe something else? Whatever, whatever's interests you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't know if this is fun. So this is painful these days, right? So product. I was going to ask you about that. returns. So thank you so much. Right. <laughs> yeah. So um, I have four uh, four messages, right? So we covered all of them: uh, pricing, variety, returns, and product recommendation. Yeah. So uh, product returns like are are uh, increasingly painful. I saw this. So because uh, of uh, more online shopping, uh, more people are returning products, and I think choice modeling can be used. For example, if you understood search how people search better, uh, choice choice modeling could be used to understand cho- return behavior. Because right? uh, to the extent possible, uh, by returns, you're trying to help people find what they want. You also want to be good at fixing uh, choice mismatches. Right? So when you happen to give them something wrong because they didn't get the right information or they were undecided to begin with, uh, they're going to probably return. And if you can preempt that, Right. If you can preempt that and basically give them more information or help them in in the in the shopping process, that would be a win-win for both of you, both the consumer shopping for the right thing, quote unquote, and uh, you trying to make that process as smooth as possible. Right. So managing product returns from a profit perspective rather than cost perspective, I think would be one thing that could be can be done with choice modeling. Uh, because you have to understand how people make substitutions between different choices. Like, do I keep this product that's not so good, I think, or uh, do I return it and look for a better one? And if they go on with their search, looking for a better one, the business can win and maybe the consumer will be better off too, right? As opposed to somebody just settling with something that they're not so happy with, but they don't want to deal with your return process, right? Because it's too, too much of a hassle. So understanding all those little choices in that shopping process that includes buying and returning, trying things, whatever the channel may be, uh, I think that's kind of the holy grail of retail right now. If you understand that process and make it smoother, I think that things would be better for for the business. Yeah, I was was fascinated pre-pandemic, and I know the statistics because I I use it in my classroom. So prior to 2019, the total amount of retail returns in the United States, this is all retail, not including physical retail, was equivalent to all e-commerce sales, somewhere in the neighborhood of north of $400 billion a year, which, which is a staggering figure when you think about it, right? Even in an economy as large as the United States, $400 billion of retail returns is just a staggering figure. Yeah. It used to be 8% of whole retail uh, before COVID, 
here's the thing that's really interesting to me because people that, that sell in e-commerce have suddenly found out that returns are a problem. Uh, have not, weren't selling like, didn't buy from like Land's End and Sears catalogs in the 70s and 80s that had, you know, 25, 30% return rates due to color, size, fit, whatever. And that's the influence that uh, all of a sudden they're shocked that such, such volume is coming back. And now how do we deal with it and how do we prevent it? So that's been a lot of the work that we've been and, and, doing. And, and here's the other angle on, on returns, actually. So this is one problem that I, I started looking at with a, with a colleague mm -hmm. at uh, University of California. So fashion industry uh, ha is probably one of the industries where the return problem is the, is the steepest because uh, there's a lot of product variety and tastes can be you know, strongly held. Uh, so it's ideal kind of scenario for uh, returns uh, blowing up. And COVID, <clears throat> COVID even um, uh, amplified that. So uh, returns cause actually sustainability issues. Uh, like, at least they amplify them, right? Because, uh, you know, items come back and forth. Uh, there's, uh, uh, there are problems. So uh, with a colleague, I'm looking at uh, how to improve the sustainability footprint of fashion. We haven't looked at the return problem yet. Uh, we looked at a different aspect of that. But that will, that will be another opportunity where understanding little choices that people make and how collectively on the demand side or the return side, uh, what that does to my business, uh, to businesses, uh, I think would be, uh, would be essential. And if you can do that while improving your sustainability footprint, even better. Right? Uh, so fashion, I think, would be another fascinating context uh, to look at these questions. Well, I never... I never applied this theory for the reason that you're talking about, but when I, when I used to run a business, uh, we were always concerned about sending the customer the wrong product. And the way I would explain it to the staff and the team was for every mistake we make, we more than triple the cost. And it's a pretty simple concept to understand. I send one out, that's one cost. They send it back. That's another cost. By the way, that sending it back cost is more than the sending it out cost. And then I send another one back. So it was more than triple. So for every, every mistake you made, which is, which is, you know, from our perspective as a business, it was a quality mm -hmm. control issue. And mm -hmm. I, I was always very pleased to say that our number of errors were extremely small. So, you know, but I'm curious now, as you mentioned it, trying to tie these things together, it, it seems intuitive then, Aiden, that increasing product variety is by its nature going to increase returns, mm -hmm. right? There's some exponential value there where increasing product variety is going to, by its own nature, increase returns. Does that make sense? It's, I would say it's a mixed bag. So, so your argument, I think, is one side of the, uh, like one force, I guess, or, or one side of the argument that's in operation. And, uh, yeah. and, the, and the reason may be that people are more confused in making choices there may be some more long tail items that people mistakenly buy and they, and they return. The other side of that argument might be if you have more variety and you're doing a good job of communicating your variety to your customer, therefore they make informed choices on everything that's available, then maybe they're less likely to return, right? In one of my theory papers, I looked at this. With data, I was never able to look at this. So this link between product variety and returns is also fascinating, right? So do you, uh, so what is the ideal variety so that people feel like they made an informed choice and it's final and then they don't have to return it? Right? 
Well, I always thought Henry Ford had it right with the Model A or the Model T. I don't remember which model it was. He said you could have any color you want as long as it's black. For supply chain, that's certainly right, right? Because uh, that minimizes costs. <laughs> and he made a fortune doing that. So he part of his argument must have been right. Exactly. Until uh, GM came along with 10 colors. I, I agree with you. Yeah. So that's, that's an important strategic decision for... for and, and again, the holy grail. The question is, is 10 colors better? Who knows? Well... Hopefully, choice modeling can help us decide it. That's the key. Herb, why don't you take us home with one one last closing closing question, and we'll let Iden get back to his uh, very important research here. Well, so so do you see the implications across outside of supply chain for choice modeling? Um, you talked a little bit about um, hotels. Another example outside it. I do. So uh, one is like you know. When I, when I say hotels, I'm thinking uh, hospitality businesses in general and um, revenue management, as it's called in, in our discipline uh, in general. Uh, like, for example, I talked to a, a consulting firm that works with storage uh, businesses. And he said, uh, you know, there are similar upselling scenarios in their business uh, and improving his service. Uh, this upselling idea, you know, could be used. So I would say uh, hospitality, retail non-traditional supply chain. I would like to use it in services as well, which I've never done before, but I'm interested in that. Like, for example, when you go to a Starbucks, uh, the menu is just a suggestion, right? There, there are many ways you can customize whatever drink you're interested in. So is that, is that my choice? Yeah, I mean, Starbucks uh, made a strategic you know, decision, right, to, to, to offer that kind of variety. And they are training uh, their people to be able to deliver that kind of variety. So, so there's a lot of operational things that they need to take care of before they can promise something like that. I'd like to understand like the service implications of high product variety in a scenario like that. And again, this is from an academic perspective. It hasn't been done before. It's I think it's a it's a very interesting area. Uh, I would love to apply choice modeling to services. Uh, like that. When you say service, you mean basically to serve the customer in this case, like speed of delivery of the of the, the cup of coffee. Right. Like it's exactly service operations like, you know, restaurants and, uh, and, and cafes, even maybe some other scenarios where product variety and choices would matter. For, like, like think of uh, theme parks as a service. Like you buy the whole bundle, you go in. And then uh, your utility really depends on, you know, how much you wait in the stuff that you want to do, right, uh, to, to a large degree. Now, managing that, managing the, the people's choices uh, within a, a theme park scenario kind of like that, I would consider that also within service operation. Very good. Well, excellent. Thank you for your time, Aiden. Um, uh, thank you for all the wonderful podcasts. Yeah, it wasn't, we weren't, it wasn't so painful, was it? No, not at all. That was great. Thank you. So. Steve, I guess you can, uh, any closing items? That's it, right? Yeah, let's bring it home. Again, uh, Iden, thank you for your uh, partnership and your friendship here in the center working with us uh, on all of our research. I know it's not just about choice modeling because we got a lot of really cool things going on both here and at Penn State. But on behalf of uh, Irv and I and uh, the Center for Supply Chain Research here in the Smeal College of Business, we want to thank you for your time today. We look forward to reading more about your research. Hopefully you'll uh, give us a few choice uh, readings that we can share with our practitioners uh, so they can follow up after this podcast and look forward to, look forward to, the, to listening to, your, to the feedback from our, uh, 
our uh, listeners after we publish this. So thanks again very much. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. Thank, thanks, Irv. Uh, this was my first ever podcast. Uh, I, I have to say I really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Thanks for listening to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research at Penn State. For information about our sponsorship opportunities, research needs, and professional development offerings, please visit smeal.psu.edu forward slash CSCR.